truly one of my favorite things about Don Reed, and you wouldn't know this about him, and I'm, this is just a little teaser of probably some of the things I will say come the end of May. We as a staff, we went on a, a, a trip this uh, not too long ago to Oklahoma City for a conference. And let me tell you, Don Reed is not as calm as y'all would think. He's got stories, okay? Just ask him about the story that would be etched on his foot, all right? So just if you find him, just be like, hey, tell me about that thing on your foot there. And he'll, he'll fill in the gaps. Um, I want to, like, it's ready 10 after 11. So good luck. Um, we're going to have some fun this morning, but we're going to be jumping right into the passage. And I do want to encourage you, I'm not going to cover everything, but... Tune into the podcast that we do right after this. We'll record it either Monday, Tuesday, post it around Wednesday, Thursday. It's called Left on Set. It is like um, Pastor Chad and I will actually be doing this, talking through the notes that were not set here on a Sunday morning because there is a lot that we want to be able to cover and we want to encourage you just to continue to chew on God's word throughout the week. Now, how many of you remember the TV show Real World? Okay. It was, it came out at the high time of us Gen Xers, like that was it. And it came out like 1992, 93. And the whole premise of this was like, you know, like I, in fact, I found the tagline and I remembered the whole jingle and everything. I was just like, this is a true story of seven strangers, right? Some of you are like, oh my goodness, I remember this, right? Picked to live in a house, to work together and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. Whoa, they quoted it right up here, the real world. And it was anything but real. Like, but we got sucked right into it. It was highly amusing. It was highly entertaining. And like, at first you wanted to believe, you wanted to believe maybe this is real, but it's not. This is not how life is. Because quite frankly, nobody's videotaping your life, right? And like the casting, you got to ask, man, they had to have scripted it at some level, but they picked seven specific figures, characters, put them in the house and tried to, you know, video editing. Come on, this is not real. But we were duped into believing or at least being deceived and, and like wanting it to be real for all sakes and purposes of entertainment. It was an imitation. It was an illusion of reality. Now, I wanted to bring that up because that is a strategic tactic that the dragon, Satan, uses in this world. He wants us to try to begin to compromise or a word that I'm going to say often this morning, and I probably will say it wrong at least once or twice. So get your laughs out now. He wants us to compartmentalize our faith, right? Because like, I don't know if you've ever said this or maybe you have heard it. Hey, I love the fact that you love Jesus, that you are a person of faith, but that's not how things are in the real world. Right, and all of a sudden we're like being convinced that there's this both and concept. Like somehow I can like take my allegiance and loyalty and love for Jesus here, but please don't bring it over into the realm of my work. Don't bring it into the workplace, into the classroom, into the neighborhoods. No, compartmentalize it. And we have experienced this. We talk about it often in the 21st century. Like, you know what? We follow Jesus on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, it's me and all my little idols, even though that's not the words we would use. 
And that phenomenon is not unique to us. It started to show up within the early years of the church, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, do you ever think about that when people say that, or maybe we've even said it to ourselves, like, man, this is just not how it is in the real world. Think about how ridiculous that statement is. As if Jesus's presence is removed Monday through Saturday. Like, is that really the real world or is that just the illusion of what Satan wants us to be convinced is the real world? This is why I love Revelation because Revelation is a letter that's revealing to us, pulling back the curtain for you and I to know what is, what has been and what will be of the real world of the physical and the spiritual for us to be able to discern how to stay loyal and faithful to Jesus in our modern day Babylon, how things are gonna shake out. Like why are things happening the way they are? And not only that, what we need to be stirred up in, to be shaken out of in order to find ourselves back in love with Jesus. So this is what we want to talk about this morning because the issue at hand, and I, like, I'm just going to let you know, like <laughs> there are some messages in Revelation, like chapter four, I can't wait to preach. It's going to be awesome. And then there's some messages you're like, can we just skip this one? I'm sure nobody's following along anyways. This is one of those messages. This is a hard message. And I'm actually coming in a lot of fear and trembling because like, I feel like I've been under it with the Lord this week. As we've been looking at this, I just feel like God's eyes, as we're going to see his eyes of fire, just piercing into my heart and challenging my core and going, where have you compartmentalized Brandon? Where have you fallen in line with the spirit of Jezebel? Now, some of you heard the word Jezebel and you immediately made some connections, but we're going to talk about that. The spirit of Jezebel is the spirit of spiritual adultery. It's not just sexual sin, it's idolatry at any level. At the core, the spirit of Jezebel is one that is convinced that you can follow Jesus and... That's the heart of it. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 18. And and this is, like, I I just want to let you know, like, this is the longest letter written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It is the toughest letter. It is a message of tough love. It's like when anytime someone would say, hey, Brandon, we need to talk. It's like that moment when someone says that, I'd get terrified. It's that kind of letter. Right? And we need God to come to speak hard truth. But we cannot forget the heart of Jesus. He's not saying these things to guilt us, to condemn us, to convict us. He's saying these things to stir us up out of complacency. He's saying these things because he loves you, right? Like we read in Revelation 1.5, to the one who loves you, to the one who has set us free by his blood. This is why he speaks these hard truths truths because he knows what's at stake. He knows the world we're in. He knows the battle that we're facing in Babylon. And he wants to stir us up out of these types of areas of complacency. And there is none more dangerous, in my opinion, than the one of compartmentalization. And if I were to say, if there's any issue of any of these seven churches that would probably resonate the most with the church in America, it's probably this one. 
And so I want you to just to lean in on this. And I want you to have ears to hear in a posture of humility instead of a posture of how dare you. Because friends, I'm telling you, these aren't, I'm trying my best to not go, this is Brandon's opinion. This is the spirit of the Lord speaking to our hearts. Revelation chapter two, verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service and endurance. And I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual morality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, real quick context of Thyatira. Thyatira is like a rural city. It's not a urban center. It's more of a town. It's the least significant city of all the seven that we see in Revelation. It's very blue collar. It's, It's very important because this is where a lot of the trades would come and surface through. And so one of the unique things about this city of Thyatira is how it more than likely the church started in the city. In Acts chapter 16, if you were to study that letter, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they find their way to Philippi, which is where the letter of Philippians was written to. And they're at this river and they're preaching the kingdom of God. And there's this lady who we know the name of Lydia. And it says that Lydia was a dealer or one who traded in purple fabric, which basically means like she had high level clientele. Like her clientele were like either royalty or they were like a seven, eight figure family. So she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and God changed her heart and she placed her trust in Jesus. And this is all we know about Thyatira. So it's safe to assume that Lydia went back on fire for the Lord, life transformed and somehow, some way, a church was planted in this city in Asia Minor. And so now she's there, Jesus is moving, and all of a sudden, just like in typical fashion of the dragon, he hates Jesus, he hates the church, and so he starts to put pressure on the church from external persecution, and if that doesn't work, he brings internal compromise. Okay, and so Jesus starts out with this letter saying like from the one, the son of God, and then he paints the picture of who he is. Like he's got eyes of fire. Like if you read this, that's where you should go, oh no, (laughs) right? Like eyes of fire, it burns, it pierces right through the soul. It sees you, it goes past your shallowness. It knows all of your facades and your pretenses. He knows what you're trying to cover up. He knows the real you. Fire burns, but it also heals. Fire is a purifying agent. And because we are people who are sinful, we love our deeds in the dark. We don't like the light. And so when the eyes of fire come in, our instinct, our sinful instinct is to run and hide. But we shouldn't run and hide if we know the heart of Jesus. When we feel the flames of his eyes piercing into our soul, his intention is not to guilt, not to condemn, but to heal and to expose and to show. 
right, is sovereign. He overcomes evil at any place in any moment. And that's why I love that he gets this title, the son of God here. Because we see this prop of Jezebel that's speaking with such authority as fire. I know what they're doing. I know what she's doing. And I know what you're doing. And, but he comes as they are doing rather amazing things. Like he, he points out, he's like, man, I know your works. Thank you, Lord. Because it would be horrible to constantly feel this sense of conviction all the time. Always failing, always coming up short. But he's like, I, he's saying, he's like, you're growing spiritually. Your latter works are greater than the ones you did at first. You are growing, actually, which is this beautiful picture of spiritual formation. But we need to take heed here because if he is saying to them, like, you're growing spiritually, that should tell us that even though we could be growing spiritually on the right trajectory, there could be areas in our hearts where we can be still compromising. That is a rather sobering reality. And so he's coming in to Thyatira that is being tempted and persuaded to live in the both and type of world. But what's fascinating is that he's speaking to people in the church who have not embraced the teaching of Jezebel. You have to catch that. He's not saying you all are following the way of Jezebel. He's saying that she's in the church somehow, some way, You've allowed her to have influence and a position of authority in the church and she's seducing my people away from the truth. So he's talking about them, but what he's saying to the church who's growing spiritually is this, you are tolerating it. You are either flirting with that teaching or you're just letting it happen. And you know it's happening but you're just letting it happen. And by that, you are actually complicit with the sin itself because you're not protecting the hearts of the flock, of the people. You're actually not loving your brothers and sisters by speaking truth in love. You're not reflecting the heart of Jesus by allowing sin and immorality and spiritual adultery to reign and be rampant in the church. Ooh, this does not sit well in the 21st century years, does it? When everything is relative and morality is subjective, don't you dare tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Who are you to say that? You do you, I'll do me, just stay away. It's no different here. They were feeling it in a different level, but here's the reality. What was unique in Thyatira was this, and this is where the subtleness of Satan shows up. In Thyatira are these things called trade guilds, which you can just think of like modern day labor unions or a club or a political party, okay? And all of these trades in Thyatira, like if you wanted to make a living in wool and leather making and anything you can think of, a plumber, electrician or carpenter, anything, you had to be part of a trade guild. In order to be part of a trade guild, you had to become a member. In order to become a member, that would mean you would have to go along with their pagan god because every single labor union had their own deity. 
And every single trade guild or every single labor union would have these festivals, would have these celebrations where they would offer sacrifices and libations to these idols. And they would share a meal off of the food that was sacrificed and offered to the idol. And they would come together and celebrate it. And then just like a great Christmas party, by the time there's been much eating and much drinking, fill in the blank. Sexual sin happens, all sorts of things start to happen. Now, if you were a follower of Jesus, you already know that is not in alignment with his heart, with his ways. That's not how we ought to live. But if you were in Thyatira and you were not part of one of these trade guilds, your financial well-being was in great jeopardy. Because if you were not part of a trade guild, if you were not in that labor union, they would refuse to do business with you. Your social status, your social life would be ruined. So what do you do as a follower of Jesus? And if you're living in Thyatira, what would Lydia do, the seller of purple cloth? Here's what Lydia said, or not Lydia, Jezebel. Do know her name probably wasn't Jezebel. It was Jezzy. Just kidding. So lame. We can just humor me. We don't know what her name was. <laughs> oh, man. They're just shaking their head at me. They're like, if they were Aggie fans, they would be hissing. There it is. Jezebel would come in and be like, guys, do you really think Jesus would intend for you to sacrifice financial stuff? He knows what you're in. He knows what you're facing. He knows your heart. So it's not a big deal if you participate in these feasts. I mean, at the end of the day, he knows. He knows that you gotta live. He knows that you gotta make money and he knows where you live. He knows how hard it would be if you didn't participate. Guys, it can't be, we're saved by grace, not by works. It doesn't matter. So go ahead and drink a little. Go ahead and, and sin sexually a little. Not a big deal because after all, did Jesus really intend for us to take that faith into the real world? That's the temptation of Jezebel. Does any of that ring a bell? And the eyes of the Son of God are like fire. Sees right through all of our facades and all of our justifications for why we do what we do. Jezebel is an Old Testament figure. You can find it in 1 Kings 17, 18. She was a daughter from the king of Sire and Tidon who were absolute enemies to Israel. Somehow she wooed the heart of King Ahab who was the king of Israel and she finally somehow convinced him to set up altars and temples and sacrifices to the idol Baal. She commissioned and underwrote and financed over 850 prophets of Baal to espouse her teaching. She also convinced Ahab to set up Asherah poles, which was basically the God of sex. Like, go ahead, worship, no big deal. She was telling Ahab and Israel, like, you can worship Yahweh. You can worship God and this, not a big deal. She knew exactly the Ten Commandments. 
Guaranteed, she knew that because it was very clear in the nation of Israel where God said, you shall have no other gods. The danger of compromise and compartmentalization is the danger of trying to espouse a faith that is convinced it can be both and. It can't be both and. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 6. You cannot serve two masters. You can't do it. I don't know about you, but if Jesus said something, like, we should probably listen. You can't do it, so stop trying. The problem why we keep trying is somehow we think we're unique and we alone can do it. You can't. You will either love one and hate the other. Friends, can I just tell you something right now? Anytime you compartmentalize your faith in Jesus, anytime you do it, I promise you, take it to the bank, Jesus will always get the short end of the stick. Always. And if you keep up that pattern, your heart will grow cold to him. So I don't know essentially where you are potentially being seduced by the spirit of Jezebel in today's world. But God had to bring Elijah in the Old Testament as a prophet. And he challenged in 1 Kings 18, he challenged the prophets of Baal and he called all of Israel to him. Essentially he's saying, hey, how long will you waver between two opinions you will either worship Yahweh or you will worship Baal. Let's find out which God is the real God. And that's why I love how Jesus says the son of God. He's like, yeah, let's find out who has the real authority here. Like how long will you waver between the two? You got to choose. The danger in the church is when the church not only embraces and lives in the way of Jezebel, but when the church allows it to happen in the church. When brothers and sisters are afraid to speak the truth in love. That is dangerous. Hebrews 12 tells us clearly that God disciplines us. Well, why does God discipline us? Because he's a jerk? Because he loves us. Kids, believe it or not, when your parents discipline you, it's because they love you. When God disciplines us, it's because he loves us. We have the word of God. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that it's profitable for teaching, for building up, for rebuking, for correcting. Like, the problem is, and I get this, like our culture pushes back so hard on it because quite frankly, many of us in the church have taken the Bible like the little sword that Peter had and just whack off someone's ear. We can use the truth and be real complete jerks with it. Right? I don't know if you've ever received that, but I also know many people in the church are like, I don't want to speak the truth because I don't want to be perceived as that. 
So we don't do it at all. But that's not loving. If you know someone's running dead head into a wall, will you not say stop? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm going to let them run right into the wall because I don't want them to think I'm mean. Busted no, whatever. Like, we have to find ourselves in this place. This is where the challenge is. Jesus is not calling out the church here that's embracing the way of Jezebel. He's a challenging and stirring up the church that is tolerating it in its flock. That's a huge difference, huge difference. And this is the thing that scares me. Jesus is fully aware of what you and I are willing to tolerate. He's fully aware of what you and I are willing to tolerate. Man, I'm gonna go places right now because I'm feeling it in my gut. Like, I know we have this topic of sexual morality here, and I know it's so easy for us. We got to hit that cultural issue. We got to talk about the transgender deal. We got to talk about sexual identity. We got to talk about all that stuff and say, no, to which I would agree with you, but not in that posture. I think there has to be a, a massive level of love and patience and grace and mercy attached to that. In fact, you even see it in how Jesus says, like, I, I've tried to get Jezebel to repent, and she said no. And even towards the end, he's like, and I'm trying to get her children or her followers to repent, but they're still saying no. Like, that's God's grace and God's mercy in pursuit of them. But church, how about we get honest with other sins of the world that we tolerate? Like, we're, man, we're going to ride that cultural stuff. And we're going to be strong and we're going to declare, we do not tolerate this sin. What about greed? What about greed? What about gluttony? The unspoken sin of the American church. I mean, friends, we could go down the whole road. What about... Un, unpleasing divorce to the Lord? What about flirting with sexual sin? Of course, joking. Uh, we could keep going on. Like, yeah, this is where the whole real world is. Like, Come on, Brandon, are you serious? He doesn't really expect us to be that severe. His eyes are like fire. I, I mean, if you're feeling the heat, that's not me. Like, like this is why I'm saying, like, I, I'm like, ouch, Lord, this is, this, is, this is hard, but it's good. And here's the thing. It's not the fact that he's trying to be moral police. We worship, we become like what we worship. The issue is the heart. The issue is spiritual adultery. It's not so much the sin, because you can even deal with the sin and still not give God your heart. The issue is spiritual adultery. Friends, we are cheating on God when we flirt with Jezebel. I mean, that is tough. That is tough, tough stuff. It's an issue of loyalty. And this is what Jezebel is constantly saying. And I know, I felt it, and I know you have too. Her teaching is so seductive. It's so subtle. It's so easy. 
He really can't be that serious. He can't really be that strict. I mean, she's propping up, I know this truth and all these types of things. That's serious. It's like, no. But church, I also need to say this. God is not saying to those who follow Jesus to start going, hey, now you go in the world and you start judging all those other people in the world. He's like, no, no, no. He's speaking to people within the church. Like, I want to point out a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Like, I want to encourage you to write this down in whatever notes you have and just look at this passage. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. A lot of people like to pause right there and be like, see, stay away from all of those evil Jezebels out there. Keep reading. I did not mean the immoral people of this world. Now look at how else he continues. He's not just talking about the sexual immoral. I'm the, I did not mean just those people or the greedy and the swindlers, the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and sexually immoral, greedy, greedy and idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunk or a swindler within the church. Those who are unwilling to repent. So like church, we should really stop being judgmental to the people outside of these walls. That is, that's not our place. Let the Lord be the Lord there. But for us in the church, we have to be very sensitive. Are we tolerating sin in the church? And like, just look at this list. You can just hit a drop-down box on each of these greedy, verbally abusive, drunkard. Drink too much? Push the line? Is it a little spiritual brinkmanship? Like, I remember a phrase my old mentor used to say to me. He's like, Brandon, what you flirt with is what you always fall to. Like, how many times do you just want to, like, get as close to the line as you possibly can without going over the line when you're like, that's really stupid. You're actually just sinning because you're trying to see how far you can go. Well, he sees your heart. That's the point of the eyes of fire. Okay, I got to land this plane. I'm going to cover the rest of this stuff <laughs> in the left side because there are some hard things that are said here. But I want to get to where he ends with the promise to the church that overcome. And as we've been talking about like last week, that revelation, the one piece of spiritual formation that it gives us over and over and over is worship. If you want to know how to remain faithful to Jesus in Babylon, worship. Worship Jesus as he's revealed. And if you just look at this letter in Thyatira, you see certain pieces, pictures of Jesus revealed. The son of God, absolute authority, the eyes of fire, the feet of bronze. You see these beautiful images of who he is. You see him as gracious and merciful by giving Jezebel opportunities to repent and her followers opportunities to repent. And you also see that he respects moral choices. He's not going to infringe upon your freedom to decide. Like he says, like you will be rewarded by what you do. And in Galatians 6, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Like you will, and that's part of the consequence of choosing a life apart from Jesus. 
But then he, like, he ends with this beautiful thing of inviting people, inviting the church into these beautiful promises. First one was to reign with him. Just like, don't, don't give yourselves into the authority of this world. It's all a lie. It's all imitation. It's not the real world. The real world is what I'm showing you. But then, this is the part I want to encourage you with. And I absolutely love this. I will also give him the morning star. Some of you are in the throes of really difficult work situations. Some are you in the throes of some really serious family situations, educational situations, where you're being tempted to compromise certain aspects of following Jesus and you're also feeling the repercussions of remaining loyal to Jesus in these areas. And some of you are even feeling the heat of not tolerating sin amongst other brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. But Jesus is very, very clear. He's like, yes, this world is dark. This world is heavy. This world is broken. But if you hold on to my teaching, I will give you the bright, and more, the bright morning star. Beautiful. Do you know when the morning star comes out? When night is at its darkest. Two or three in the morning. More than likely the planet Venus. They didn't know that then. But that would indicate when they saw the morning star, what it symbolized was this is as dark as it's going to get. This star is bringing in the dawn. When Jesus says, I give you the morning star, he's saying, I'm giving you my presence. It's dark, but it's not going to get any darker. Hang on. The dawn is coming. Hold on. It's coming. I give you my authority as you wait. I give you my presence as you wait. Hold on. Hold on. To him or her who overcomes, I give the morning star. You will see it. Are we not feeling, like when, when we lose sight of Jesus, isn't that when things get awfully cloudy in our own lives? When we're tempted to veer off and to be seduced by the ways of this world? He gave us the morning star. Keep your eyes and your heart focused on him. Look to him. This is why we get these pictures of Jesus. And this is why worship is what forms us. This is why worship is what keeps us rooted in following the way of the lamb. He is so gracious with us. He is so long suffering with us. Austin Oaks Church, I end with two applications for you. And I just want you to find yourself in either one or, the, one or the other. One, you're here this morning and you need to hear this. Stop spiritually playing or fooling around with other gods. And I do mean it that way. Because that's how scripture would portray it. Stop fooling around with idols. He sees 
You can't hide from his eyes. And he sees to cut and to heal. Second, some of you need to hear this. Love one another in the church, in the church, by speaking truth in love to them. And, and walk with them through the process of repentance. Don't just call them out and be like, peace, did my job. Walk with them. Walk with them, because they're a family. So church, we're gonna end in a posture of worship, and just like we've been doing every Sunday, we have people in our church who love to pray, and they wanna be here to pray for you. And so they'll be in the corners, they'll have the lanyards on there, but if there's like, literally, I'm just saying anything that's stirring inside of you, it could be in relation to this message, it could be anything that the Lord just stirred in your heart, respond to that, that's the Holy Spirit prompting you. In fact, sometimes when we come forward to have brothers and sisters pray for us, that is an act of humbling ourselves. And the promise is that God will exalt us as we do. But use this time in worship as a family of God. Just allow him to speak truth into our hearts. To allow him to speak and to navigate. Friends, some of you need to stop running from his fiery eyes. You don't need to be scared of him. Because he will speak truth, but he's doing it out of love. Come know his heart. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your time, the time that we get together this morning. God, I, I, as we were singing before, the, the song of holy, holy all around, I just kept thinking of Revelation 4. And just being able to imagine what that would be like to see the throne with myriads of angels singing and crying out, worthy, holy. To see the 24 elders that represent humanity casting their crowns before you. God, and we stand here sometimes so lifeless and and (laughs) calloused and unmoved. So Lord, we need for your spirit to pull back the curtain. Help us see what you see. God, we pray that you would stir us up as a church. Help us to love one another well. Help us to love the world around us well. And help us to never, ever compromise truth. Help us to never water down doctrine. It's sacred. It's given to us as a gift meant to guide us for our good and your glory. So Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you stir us up? 